Is this thing on? <clears throat> this is Artscape, an investigation into the artistic and cultural landscape of our region, with your hosts, Katie and Harold. For the next hour, we are going to take a journey through sound and storytelling. This podcast is brought to you by CFUV 101.9 FM, located on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen and Wasanic peoples, created with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. Join us as we uncover the people, happenings, and organizations that make up the artscape in which we live. Slowly but slowly, I'm kind of moving right into sound art exclusively. Sound art um, tends to... Uh, sound art at the time was not something that was really talked about much. Uh, sound art to me... Wait, we can't start the episode yet. Okay. Um, so our guests are going to start telling us about what sound art is, but you know what? Harold... What is sound? Well, sound is something that tickles my ears. Interesting. So, you might say that what we call sound, if I were to use some feathery, some kind of, you know, fun language, fluffy language, sound is like an onrushing and a cresting and with drawing wave of air molecules that begins with the movement in this case Mm -hmm. of my mouth Mm. and then the waves of sound roll like tides into our ears where they make the eardrum vibrate This in turn moves three bones. Do you know the names of these bones, Harold? No. Well, they have pretty great names. The hammer, the anvil, Mm -hmm. and the stirrup. And, fun fact, these are the tiniest bones in our bodies. Wow. Who knew? So, furthermore, sound is transmitted in three stages. So, I mean, as you can guess, because you were talking about tickling of, you know, things, the outer ear acts as a funnel to catch and direct the sound. Though many people lack outer ears, i.e. Van Gogh at one point. And, um... Right. Or, you know, you're wearing your toque, so you have a little muffling, mm-hmm. um, and then the, the sound waves hit the fan-like eardrum, and it moves the first tiny bone, so that kind of hits a cup-like socket, and then moves the third 
which presses like a piston the soft fluid filled inner ear in which the snail shaped tube called the cochula containing hairs whose purpose is to signal the auditory nerve cells when the fluid vibrates the hairs move exciting the nerve cells and then send their information to your brain whoa this is all happening right now yeah like as i was talking that was literally happening happening to you and to me i didn't know that listening and hearing was so poetic it can be and i had no idea there was like hairs and stuff doing all that wow talk about active listening yeah this is very meta oh yeah yeah wow so you know now that we know what's going on well this is diane ackerman and uh she wrote a book called a natural history of the senses and one of the chapters in the book is called hearing Hmm. and so i thought you know what better way to start an episode on sound and sound art than to talk about our senses Hello, my name is Janet Rogers, and I am um, Mohawk Tuscarora from Six Nations, and I live here on traditional Coast Salish territory um, for 22 years. Gosh, in April will be 22 years since 1994, and um, 1994. And uh, so I'm a writer, and I work in radio, and those are the two kind of like the basic, the most, the things that I do most frequently, <laughs> and now. <clears throat> Pardon me. The um, what I'm doing with uh, with the poetry is, and I've been doing this for a little while now, and it just kind of keeps evolving, which I'm so excited and pleased and inspired by. Um, is that I'm moving into a, uh, using a lot more sound with the poetry and recording that poetry with the sound and the songs and the effects and um, the textures, the audio sonic textures that are in there. So this is this is um, a new thing kind of for me, and but it's it's keeping me very very, like I said, excited. Um, you know, I almost want to write for the sake of recording because I'm so excited by it. And so that's uh, where I'm kind of entering the whole practice of sound art uh, with my work currently. And slowly but slowly, I'm kind of moving right into sound art exclusively. Um, over this, over a few months ago uh, in January, I think it was, I I was invited to present at um, a NASA um, gathering, and NASA is the New Adventures in Sound Art. And this is a group that, if anyone who is interested in sound art, please visit what this group does, because they really nurture, support, um, and inspire people uh, who work within sound art practices. And they're based in Toronto, and so I went over to Toronto and um, met with the people who are members of that group. And it was like finding your tribe. <laughs> it was like finding a, 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 a tribe for me because it was like, you know, these people were wonderfully nerdy, 
wonderfully excited about sound and any um, work around sound. And I got a taste of what other sound artists are doing. And it's all so very exciting, you know. So go, you know, find them on the SoundCloud, find them on the websites, and um, they have gatherings and meetings and things like that. So if you're in the Toronto area, that's where they usually meet, but um, they do have work that's available online so you can um, find out what's going on. So this is so this is kind of like where where I'm starting my practice with sound art, and uh, I I think it's a there's probably no I can say definitely definitively that there are influences from working in radio and there are influences from producing my own poetry recordings that has kind of brought me into this this new practice and like I'm just seeing the infinite possibilities that go along with working with sound and I'm just so excited about it I think of when I think about it and I talk about it I have a big smile on my face I was just in um, at UNBC for four months and uh, doing a writer in residency there and what I found was happening with the new work that I was writing and then ultimately you know very quickly recording the new work was that I was allowing more sound to come into those those poetry recordings and so I was having a lot more fun being a lot more free giving myself a lot more permission to let the sounds narrate if you will or carry the narrative of the pieces and so that in itself is gave you know lend itself to a kind of a newer practice and and I was very excited about that because like, you know we always have to evolve otherwise you know we become manufacturers of the same kind of art so I was happy to find this new way to do what I love doing and then from there um, I, I, I worked out this, uh, because of this invitation to present with NASA, the New Adventures in Sound Art people, I developed a new piece that brought my two loves together, so sound and radio. <laughs> and so I started to work with um, uh, clock radios. <laughs> and I remember someone in the, the Q&A session at, when I presented that, they said, well, why clock radios? And I said, well, budget. <laughs> clock radios are accessible and clock radios are affordable so um, and it's like just you know it's just exploring the limits and the or the not the limits with what you can do with clock radios and and I went to Value Village right I went to the secondhand stores and um, and found I, I hit the jackpot man like you know like spirit was working with me and they're going go to go to Value Village so I went there and found like this cache of Fisher Price clock radio that did all these fancy, weird, wonderful things, lullabies and what have you, and shining lights, projecting lights and stuff, and a 70s clock radio, you know, that had that really annoying <coughs> alarm with it, and all, and then everything in between. And so I thought, wow, this is this is it. So that's how I developed, um, and, and it was all really important that they had like the um, manual dial for tuning. Because digital tuning, you can't get those in-between things. You know, basically the clock with a digital tuner is telling you what you can hear. Whereas if you have a manual tuning, then you can kind of squeeze out those little in-between stations, you know, to get them to come in. So that was important, um, working with the clock radios. And basically I just I started to develop this wacky piece that included the sound from the clock radios. And also I, perf I did some performance work with with that as well. What I wanted to 
represent was um, ourselves as receivers. Oftentimes, and Katie, we're work, you know we're in radio, and we you know all the time we're broadcasting. We're 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 very concerned and focused with expressing and putting sound out into the world, and you know the news and the the sounds and everything. Um, this was um, joining forces with the sounds and the static and the noise that comes out of radio. And then I was doing these um, series of um, postures and actions that represent being a receptor of that sound and noise. And um, so I was sitting and I was just just listening. So for 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 about a minute, I sit and I listen to everything. You know, after I after I plug in the radios and I've got them all tuned into different things. Some of them are on stations. Some of them are not. Some of them I've got the. Um, the buzzers going and things like that. So we just sit and listen to all of that. And when I do that, then the audience, you know, whoever's watching this performance, they're being invited to do that as well. What are you listening to, you know? And you're going to hear different things coming in and out of your your own frequencies, you know, what you're picking up in your um, internal antenna, you know, kind of thing. And then the, there's other actions that go along with that. Like, for example, um, I go back to the radios and I kind of retune them all so that they're all, you know, expressing something different from their dial tones. And um, and then I and then uh, at one point I stand up and I put my arms out and my thumbs are up in the air. And what I'm doing is I'm I'm being the antenna because we want to, you know, so my body is kind of expressing being an antenna and tuning in what I can tune in. It's the receiving and it's the it's the expressing. It's the receiving and the ex- expressing because. Radio is is a medium that takes both. You cannot, you know, just uh, broadcast without having somebody there. It's a, it, it would be an incomplete um, action. So, so I kind of wanted to focus on on that. Um, and I think it worked. I, I think it worked. At, like I, you know, that was my first time doing that performance piece with the radios. And um, I brought them to Toronto with me when I was just there three weeks for three weeks doing a um, visiting artist gig at OCAD. So hopefully this summer when I go back, I'll be able to further develop because I really think that piece could really be further developed and do more interesting things with it yeah you know I have been with um CFUV with the radio station for gosh nine years I'm getting more um adept at using the sound the audio editing programs and so I'm learning how to maybe even create my own beats and rhythms and, and music digitally and then adding that to the poetry. So it's all, it's, I'm still exploring, like I, I'm, I'm a baby man. I'm just still like a newbie um, exploring all of this stuff. And, but it's, it's keeping me very, very excited and of what's to come, you know. Yeah. And, but what already has been, uh, I've been able to do with the little bit of skill that I do have, you know, with these things. Um, I'm going to direct you to, if you don't mind, to um, one of my favorites that I created recently up north, and that was the Sasquatch piece. And I love my Sasquatch poem, and I love the Sasquatch piece that I was able to create because I found um, some Sasquatch sounds, um, you know, on the internet, and you know, and and also uh, this woman. Mary Gucci, who is lovely, she's the grandma of a lovely friend of mine, Kim Gucci, is reciting in carrier like her carrier language uh, words like rope and berries and things like this, and included that in there. And then also like this 911 call, which was like really spooky. This guy was like freaked 
out, man. And he was like calling 911 because a Sasquatch was in his backyard and stuff. So I include, was able to include that. So these found sounds and then these created sounds and you know, the, you know, you learn. I think I, w- I have learned anyway, just by doing how to meld the t- a tone uh, to be this cohesive piece using the tone of the piece, the subject matter, and so on and so forth. So again, I'm just, just having a blast with that. Foot traffic limit. It's impossible for mortal accessible important territory. Everybody Unaffected by frost fog gorging on seasons of buffet changes they answer only to each other in violent clashes log messages and innate languages only spoken only when necessary original it was never necessary before no waste it's how they get away no trace but the silent dna askew to human what are they what is it free of us we of them how do they exist and not and make us when believe falls, in a presence more questions than evidence just believe dampened answers pass under microscopes we have fallen in love with mysterious drop the elusive promise of other cease to chase but place Invitational objects stacked along thick bush paths, rope, perfectly shaped stones, long, solid branches, and something we don't know what. Free, there has always been a question of indigenous what blood flows through our veins. Only curiosity and perceived protocols provide hope. Bearing straight, we want to be first. First, look. First to peel back all doubt, lift evidence, and proclaim there is something bigger than any question, stranger than any truth, more magnificent than fiction. 911, what are you reporting? Uh, we got someone or something crawling around out here. Did you see what it was? Was it a person or an animal? Or... Hey, Harold. You know, Claire Lenoble who has the music show uh, Super Crucial Style here at the station. Right, yeah. Uh, She just completed her BFA in visual arts and her BA in the history of art here at UVic. Right on. So, well, also taking upper level courses in the School of Music. Whoa. So, I bet she knows a thing or two about sound art. Would you be able to ask her about it? Claire Lenoble? Yeah. Sure. Sure, yeah, I'd love to talk to Claire Lenoble. I'll uh, see if I can get in touch with her. She's probably just, like, in the office somewhere, if you track her down during her show. I will uh, inquire as to her whereabouts immediately. Yo, Claire, where you at, girl? (laughs) Well, thanks so much for meeting with me. So, Claire, what are you doing right now? Like, where are you going and where are you coming from? Yeah, well, uh, this afternoon I'm going to be interviewed about my practice as a sound artist, which, uh, you know, involves many different things from composition to uh, other kinds of music making to sound installation and uh, sculpture. Well, before we get talking about that kind of stuff, I'm just I'm just wondering, Claire, because I don't really understand what sound art is. Can you kind of just yeah. tell like what's the difference between sound art 
and music, experimental music or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely um, the historical context, I guess. Um, I guess, I don't know, one difference between sound art and something like music composition, from my experience, is that sound art um, tends to involve space more as a medium, whereas music composition um, involves um, time as a medium. Mm. Um, and it's not to say that there is not crossover, because of course there is, and really it's a fine line between space and time. But um, I also find with sound art, the visual aspect is uh, very important in the work, whereas sometimes with music composition, the visual aspect is not really as important. And um, to kind of give that a little bit of... Uh, to make sense of that, I think um, if you were to make a sound art installation, each installation would look different from the previous or the next one. Um, and then in music composition, you might have 10 pieces that are performed in the same concert hall. So visually, the space is pretty much the same each time. Mm -hmm. So you were saying that the visual isn't as important in sound art. I think so, at least for my practice, not not for everybody. And I think there's definitely um, an area of sound art that is not installation-based and could exist in any form of architecture, such as an iPod or something like that, something that's more of a soundscape, or it could exist on a vinyl record or a cassette tape. Can you give me an example of how we might think of it as a visual? Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, I mean, for my uh, sound art, for the most part, it's electroacoustic. So I'm I'm utilizing electronics in the work, and then for me, the presentation of the electronics is um, important. So usually, my work involves sculpture, and I will um, organize the electronics that are used in producing the sound or manipulating the sound in a way that's um, systematic visually and also um, is presentable. So I remember at one of your shows that I went to that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was was looking at capturing and reproducing the sound in the room and um, you had made these really beautiful fiberglass or acrylic Plexi acrylic plexiglass, <laughs> plexiglass speakers. They were all very uniform and mm -hmm. and tasteful. And. Mm -hmm. and that goes back to the visual aspect. I work with plexiglass a lot because I'm really interested in showing each component um, that's used in producing the sound mm -hmm. and whatnot. And most electronics are uh, fitted in black or silver kind of uh, cases. And that's an aesthetic in most audio gear from synthesizers to speakers, keyboards, all that kind of stuff. Um, but as a visual artist, I'm really interested in seeing all the components that are used in producing something that's important nice. to me. You must be um, interested in the aesthetic of speakers and Absolutely, equipment yeah. and stuff like that. So how did you come to, to find sound art? And um, I mean, I think there's multiple starting points, but I did play piano for about uh, 10 years, I think, when I was younger. And so my appreciation of music uh, has definitely been influenced by that. And I, I see that 
Um, a lot of my sound art is kind of a response to music that I appreciate in various abstract ways. But then also, uh, I'd say that my first um, uh, use of sound as a creative medium goes back to uh, second year, a digital media class that I was taking. And we had to um, take recordings of sounds that were made by the body, it could be anything, and then manipulate that to, to uh, produce some kind of quadraphonic sound um, piece. And I think it had to be somewhere around two minutes or five minutes or something. And um, I like doing that kind of work. It's, it's almost like a sound collage. Um, but again, in that instance, we were working with speakers that already existed in the space. Um, and so uh, that's something I wanted to change in my future work, build my own speakers, build my own uh, electronic gear, that kind of cool. stuff. Perhaps maybe you could tell me a bit about your latest um, show or latest um, piece that you've had yeah. out in the world. I think... Um, the last piece I did was one that I was working on all last semester, and that, that one was for a class that I'm in called Art 495. It's a nine-credit course that's year-long, so if you break that down, it's uh, one class that's equivalent to six classes. So it's very intensive. Holy. And um, yeah, it was a, a project that I spent the whole semester working on, and I was interested in exploring the effects of sensory intermodulation. And so I was working with an illusion called um, the Mick-Gurk effect. And in the Mick-Gurk effect, you have, um, you basically have sound that's playing through speakers, um, and then you have video, and um, the sound in the video is basically uh, somebody speaking, so you can see their mouth. And um, the sound that uh, it looks like the person is saying in the video it looks like the person in the video is saying is different than the sound that's being played through the speaker and that actually affects um, how we hear the sound that is truly playing through the speakers if that makes sense so basically wow. you have yeah one sound that really exists mm -hmm. and then what you see actually affects how you hear it Amazing. and um, so I had like a dual-sided screen that was kind of um, it was fit inside a plexiglass box, and it was a, basically a big sound and video sculpture. It was really cool, and I'll be representing that um, for the grad show um, later in April. And you can also check that piece out or some documentation of it on my website, mm. which is at clairelenoble.com. What, what do you want participants and gallery goers to walk away with after having mm -hmm. um, ex experienced this? Well, I think that uh, even though I'm working a lot of the time with um, sound and sound-related phenomena and illusions and things like that, they are always real-world situations. Um, but I think that I'm uh, accentuating those situations and making them sort of larger than life in my work. Mm. But they are still things that exist, like acoustic phenomena that exist outside the gallery space. So I hope that by creating a more extreme situation that really causes somebody to be very aware of what's happening, that um, hopefully when they're outside of the gallery, they can be 
a bit more attuned mm. to those sound events. So I heard you had a performance at the Royal BC Museum recently. I did. I was working with uh, one of my uh, professors at UVic. He's actually the chair of the visual arts department, and his name is Paul Wald. And uh, we were also working with Tina Pearson, who's a composer and a very talented flautist. Hmm. And um, it was me and about... I'd say 15 other performers and in the Royal BC Museum there are the dioramas the forest diorama and the ocean scene diorama and there's also the woolly mammoth and um, basically these false environments but we were using acoustic instruments things like violins um, I think there's flute there was a uh, bass clarinet um, I was doing percussion, and we were trying to um, do something called sonic mimicry, um, mm. so recreate the sounds of the environment as accurately as possible. And um, cool. I don't, I, I was saying earlier that I played piano for many years, but I haven't really, other, other than that, I haven't really touched too many instruments, and so I, I was definitely an amateur in the, in the career, but I was doing percussion. Mostly ambient sounds like wind um, and ocean sounds, and a couple things like woodpecker and um, some rain and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was an interesting performance because as much as it was about playing your instrument well, it was also about listening eff effectively because it wasn't um, it wasn't standard notation. Um, so it wasn't perfectly timed out or anything like that. You just kind of had to um, know more or less when to do your part. Uh -huh. I guess it was specified down to about a minute. You uh -huh. know, at minute 15, I had to make a certain sound, but it wasn't right at that time. It was I when see. I felt like it would be appropriate to make that sound. And how did it go for you? It was really fun. I had a great time. I'd never done anything like that and um, it was great every single performance uh, there is always a familiar face in the crowd mm. lots of my other visual arts professors were there and they didn't even really know that I was doing the piece so that was a pretty cool surprise and no doubt. it was really um, it was awesome to work with some of the more professional musicians like Joanna Hood Tina Tina Pearson um, they're, uh, you know, that's what they do for a living, and mm -hmm. then I'm just an amateur, but sure. everyone's more or less on the same page. We're all working together, and I learned a lot from them. Super cool. Well, it sounds like you're out there playing with the big kids now. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to hope so. Well, I'm ex excited to hear about what comes next for you in your sound art journey. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, I'm applying to grad schools right now, so one of the programs I applied to is uh, it's actually an MFA in sound art, and that's at Columbia School of the Arts. So okay. You're going for it. Yeah, hopefully. So yeah, Claire mentions one of her professors, Paul Wald, and he seems really fitting for this episode, but um, yeah, I wanted to interview him, but he's nowhere to be found. I've emailed him. I've checked with the visual arts department. I mean, he is the chair, so you would think that he would be there. But, but uh, you know, Katie, I do have some insider information that I picked up while I was lingering in one of the studios. You and were lingering? Really? 
Well, I was just hanging out in the visual arts building trying to see if I could catch him. Um, anyways, turns out he's apparently in Anchorage, Alaska. Something about the museum's polar lab or something. No, you're uh, kidding. Well, that's what I heard. That's amazing. Oh, oh my God. So I guess, I guess I'm going to, well, I'm going to call him. I'm going to call him up. Call him up. That's how I'm going to get this interview. We have to have this interview. This is, this is too good. Try right now. See if you can catch him. So I'm curious, just um, what does sound art mean to you and how you approach it? Well, I guess for me, I can only give you my own interpretation of it. Um, When I started doing what I was doing, um, what I'm doing now, which is uh, working with a combination of instructional scores as well as notated scores, um, it really dates back to ideas that I was having in the in the mid '90s, and at that time I had been uh, I I was finished, just finishing grad school and had studied mostly in painting and drawing, uh, as well as sculpture and art making, as well as some photography. Um, at the same time, sort of parallel to that, I was playing in bands. Uh, so I went. To, I did my graduate studies at NYU. And so I was playing in clubs uh, in the evenings and the weekends uh, around New York. And we always kept music and art separate. Uh, and at a certain, but I was making installations that were uh, multimedia. And uh, at a certain point, I started wondering if there was ways to bring these ideas together and uh, find a place between art and music. And uh, sound art at the time was not something that was really talked about much. There were people that had been working with sound art, you know, in the 60s and, and 70s, and I'm sure there were people continuing to do that in the 80s and 90s, but it wasn't something that we were taught about in school. So it wasn't uh, a genre of investigation that, that I knew anything about. I, know I probably would have arrived at where I, where I ended up much quicker, but... Um, yeah, the first time I did it was I wrote a score that um, was for an installation. I wrote a string quartet, and it was based on marks that were left in a tree um, by beavers uh, that, that fell in front of my studio in Northern Ontario. And I translated that into, um, first into a graphic notation, and then into standard notation. And then because of uh, I was using a scoring software that allowed me to export uh, an audio file as well as a MIDI file. So I was able to invite people to come and do performances of it as well as do remixes. And I had a, um, a dub plate cut and invited people to, to remixes uh, with, with the vinyl as well. And um, it was really out of a desire to, you know, I'd been working with ideas around DJ culture in my work slightly before that, uh, but I wanted to see if I could actually bring, you know, some of that culture directly into the gallery and have live performance as part of it. And that's kind of what got me going in that investigation uh, in that way. And um, from there, I started developing things more um, and 
looking at, at sound as a thing and making art from that. Um, <clears throat> so that's my own approach to it. And, um, you know, of course, in the, in the, you know, not that long afterwards, you know, a lot of artists uh, have come to the forefront and where sound is, you know, one of the, their primary uh, mode of representation or 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 expression and uh, we're seeing a lot more and the history of sound art has really been uh, written um, I'd say you know it's around the year 2000 uh, all these books have come out and uh, the history of sound art is really coming you know there's always art, uh, sound by artists or records by artists and things like that that were continuing to be released but um, it wasn't something that was really on my radar, and I guess that's as an artist, that's one of those things you kind of have to come to things on your own uh, and find your place within it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so you know, so for me, I'm coming from a visual arts background, so it's it's an intermediary practice that's uh, between music and sound, or music and music and visual arts, but it's not necessarily either um you know it can be musical but it, you know it's not necessarily music um it can be visual uh but it doesn't have to be visual so it, it occupies the, the space between but one of the things that i've been exploring uh quite intently uh for for some time is um sounds that you don't normally hear or sounds that are evidence of things that are in the environment so whether it's a a raindrop or you know the sound of ice or uh, you know some kind of information that you can't see I can give a visual form to it so those are some of the things that I'm trying to draw attention to and the other thing that um, I really like about it is that the time-based medium and um, I find that you know, today in society, things are moving very, very fast, and a lot of sounds that we are in, uh, encountering, and even the information that we encounter on an everyday basis, are quick. You know, it's very fast-paced. It's advertising. It's you know, three-minute pop songs. And what I try to do with my work is give people the opportunity to slow down and really listen to something over an extended period. So that's a very different experience, and uh, you know, I find when people are given that opportunity, they actually it gives them the opportunity to have their own thoughts. And so you present uh, certain collections of information, um, and not tell people what to think, and uh, but give them time to think. And um, quite often, they have um, profound experiences. You're a part of a collective. Is it Le Sam? Is that yeah, your sound art collective? Yeah, it's our, it's our, our, our group of um, that, and really, there's three of us. There's uh, George Zanatakis, uh, who also works at which is at UVic in computer science, and um, he's uh, engaged with uh, creating new instruments and software for uh, creating music. And so he's cross-pointed with the, the faculty of music and uh, computer science and, and Tina, 
Peter Pearson and myself, and we have a group called Experimental Music Unit, and uh, formed together as well under, under that banner. In some ways, I feel like sound art found me. Like I didn't, I wasn't out looking for sound art because I didn't know sound art existed, and uh, you know, I just started including sound in my work, and so. For me, it was this, this discovery, and you know, and being able discovering uh, that there's, you know, that there's a history of like-minded um, creators out there that were engaged with sound, you know, dating all the way back to the the futurists, uh, you know, with Rosolo's uh, Antonomore, which is, I believe, from 1916. Um, you know, and so there's been this long history of artists kind of engaged with with sound, and um, it's a fascinating field, and you know, it never seems to um, tire on me. You know, and and it is within the larger, you know, uh, overarching um, category of art, which you know is equally fascinating as the real. Uh, ongoing invest, investigation for me. You know, I, I love researching about it. I love reading about it. I love listening to sound art, um, and I like the crossovers between sound art and experimental music. And so, there's a lot of different things that that holds my interest uh, within it. And um, you know, certainly sometimes you know, work like works I create are more on the visual side, and and, and then some are more. Um, engaged with the sound aspect, but um, yeah, there's never any shortage. You know, it's like asking a painter why they, you know, aren't tired of, of painting. It's, there's always new subject matter, there's always new um, ways of seeing, and in my case, you know, ways of listening. And, uh, you know, something else I'll tell you another story uh, that happened to me. Um, in 2010, I lost the hearing in my left ear, and um, I was. It happened all of a sudden, and you know, doctors don't really know why it happened. And at the time, I thought about giving up on all this stuff. I thought oh, I'm just going to go back to making visual work and try to find a, a way to be to have a voice that way. It really affected me when it when it first happened. Um, but I had a couple of exhibitions that were coming up. Um, I had I had a performance with a collective that I was working with uh, called Audio Lodge, and we still work together sometimes. So we were having our first live performance, and I also had an exhibition in Vancouver of um, that first piece that I did with the string quartet, and I needed to do some work on. Um, cleaning up those scores a little bit. It had been a long time since I'd looked at them. And what I discovered when I was working on those scores and when I was playing with Audio Lodge was that that was the only time um, that I forgot that I had a hearing impairment. I was able to focus uh, on listening and listening to the sounds inside my head uh, during the composition process, and it would make me forget uh, that, that I had a hearing impairment. And, and of course now I'm much more used to not being able to hear in that ear. But uh, at the time, 
you know, I I couldn't enjoy listening to music. Um, I felt disoriented all the time. And uh, it's one of those things, you know, I think when you lose something that's important to you um, or you take something for granted uh, and then you then you lose it, um, it makes me much more aware of it. So I'm much more aware, I think, of the sound environment, uh, ironically, even though I can't hear it as well, uh, than I was before. There is plenty more for people to look at. You know, I, I encourage people to look at some of the fantastic books that are out there on, on sound art. There's, uh, you know, some great texts that have come out in the last couple of years. Um, Seth Kim Cohen's book, it's called In the Blink of an Ear, and it's towards non-cochlear sound art, and that's sort of about the relationship of conceptualism and sound art. And Christophe McGowan, who's a really interesting sound artist, he has a book out called Sonambulant, which is, it's all about, you know, sound art in the body and the sounds of the body. So there's some really great stuff out there, and there's a couple of Whitechapel Press has a, a book that's a collection of writings on sound art. Called sound art. So there's there's lots of great stuff out there, and you know, Ubu Web has great collection of sound art pieces. They're not all uh, great fidelity. Some are some are MP3s, but if people are looking and wanting to listen to uh, examples of sound art, they they can find it there. Okay, Harold, I'm beginning to realize that sound art just has so many different approaches. Mm-hmm. You gotta give me someone else to talk to. Hmm. What about uh, Dan Godlovich? Um, you know him, right? You guys, are you in a band or something? Right, Dan Godlovich, yeah. Oh, he'd be great to talk to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He does sound for events or something. Right. Give me his number. Right, yeah, Paper Street. I've got his number. Um, yeah, Give me that phone. Here you go. Yeah. Give it to me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Relax. Here's my phone. Okay, thanks. Hey, I'm Dan. Most of my life is concerned with sound in some way or other. Here we go. Uh, Sound art to me, I think the way that I choose to interpret that is to think about it as when you make music or you make background for some piece of art or experience where you have this strong focus on how the textures of the sounds themselves can affect like the mood and the meaning so it's not just oh this is a sad scene in this film I'm scoring I'll write something in a minor key on a piano but thinking about how like tone of whatever you write could help you evoke that sort of thing Well, most of what I do these days is on computer because it's the most powerful tool that we have for this sort of thing. 
and the lap lap is basically, I think it's the 21st century folk instruments. If you're used to it, it's this very direct and powerful way of writing music. To me, it would be more natural to sit down and write a tune on my laptop than it would on guitar, even though I've been playing guitar for years. And so, yeah, I spend a lot of time sitting at a computer with a bunch of processors and keyboards around me. We have all these virtual instruments that we can run in, in like various programs, putting down melodies and then orchestrating them, trying different sounds and experimenting, creating different sounds and seeing how everything flows together and works together. Working with digital sound makers is the first time we've ever been able to or had to separate the physical action of making a sound from the sound itself. So when you play guitar, you're plucking a string and then the string's vibrating and it's making a sound and you have all this control over it because it's like how you fretted it or how you plucked it and what you plucked it with. And if you're playing piano, you're pressing, you know, even though it's a little less direct, you're pressing a key that's causing a little hammer to hit the string. And depending on how hard you hit it, how fast you hit it, if you hold it down, all these traditional acoustic instruments, the interface that we have is also directly linked to making sound, or like drums or singing are like the most direct, right? You hit a thing or you make your vocal cords move. And with a computer, all of a sudden, we can have a program that is this deep, rich world for making sound in. The kind of sound that it makes and the way that you control it isn't actually tied to the program itself. So there's this big challenge, I guess, in all this stuff of how to take something like a laptop that has all this powerful sound-creating machinery on it and turn that into an instrument that you can play, that you can introduce more physicality into it. With my solo project, uh, OKPK, I've just uh, released an EP on a Vancouver label called Low Indigo. And that's way more like kind of my my lab for flooring. It's sort of a dance music project, but it's much more out there. It's much more about an audience getting an experience through sound um, and the forms of dance music that I use, uh, footwork and R&B and stuff, stuff are kind of a way to start that conversation and there what I do it's much more live where I'm controlling a lot more of how the sounds in all of my songs are working together and all the textures and tones and how they're working together and with that a lot of the time I want it to be um, overwhelming isn't quite the right word but um, I want to kind of create a very beautiful but also very intense experience for people um, just through the sheer presence and the sheer volume of sound. When you work in audio, playing things loud is basically like putting a magnifying glass up to all the little details of it. And so if you're really into sound design and sound art, you're basically, when you're playing out on a good PA, the whole audience is getting to see every little detail and every little nuance that you put into it. Hopefully there's stuff in there that will move them.
So you're doing some improv sound art with Paper Street Theater. Can you talk a little bit about that collaboration? Yeah, so I've been doing that for about three seasons now with them, uh, maybe four. And basically what what happened was I just sort of, I met these guys through a mutual friend and I'd been doing a lot of sound design improv stuff through my project The Krells, which is uh, it's like a thing that I have with a couple of props that you that sort of like very modern music art gallery stuff. And I was kind of interested in the idea of doing improv in a totally different context. The way Paper Street works, it basically every every show uh, is a two-act play that's completely improvised, except that it's, the intention is for it to come across as though it was pre-written. And they do they manage to sort of control that rather than just going off into random stuff by each show is, you know, they'll pick a, an author or a director or a particular genre. So we just did a run based on Margaret Atwood's early work, like The Handmaid's Tale. And where I kind of fit in with Paper Street is, you know, when we did, like we've done a t improv Tarantino. And so for something like that, I'll just, you know, get, I basically go and find a bunch of music that sounds like something that Tarantino would have used in a film, but hasn't. And then I'm there as they're doing the play and responding to the mood that they're creating or encouraging the mood that they're creating. But where it gets really interesting and where it's like kind of relevant to what we're talking about now is when we do stuff Atwood or um, we did a sci-fi thriller. So think like, um, like 2001 or Solaris. You know, I basically build up a palette of sounds and moods and textures. And then I'm controlling it all as the play is evolving and just as I say it's kind of this mutual I respond to them they respond to me as the story progresses Interesting. it's fun because we get to uh, for the sci-fi and for Margaret Atwood we get a subwoofer and we put it under the stands and then low bass rumbles are this incredible way to build this kind of subliminal sense of dread it's like we have some sort of primitive thing in our brains that when if there's like a low rumble going on, you get uneasy. I'm curious about some of your process with the Joan of Arc accompaniment. Uh, for that, so I was working with Thomas Shields from Righteous Rainbows and from uh, Run Chico Run. It was his gig, he's done a few of them before, he invited me to join him. And I basically just took this sort of big bag of tricks that I built up from working with Paper Street and just ideas that I had about using certain bits of sound to accentuate moods. And what we did was we just sort of, we got together a few times, we watched that movie a few times and sort of blocked it out and sort of identified the moods and the major themes in it. And then we figured out between us kind of which instruments or voices we'd be playing, um, which ones Thomas was in control of and which ones I'd be in control of. Basically plotted it out and had a rough timeline and sort of, I'm going to call it like a texture map, 
after the film. I don't know if you've seen it. The first 15 minutes are just this. It's a trial scene where the, it's like actually a transcript from her trial. They kept records and they survived. It's just these quick cuts and it's all close-ups. And because it's silent films, all the actors have these super emotive faces. And we were just playing with ideas, kind of just using these abrupt bursts of static as these very sort of jarring sounds to try and convey her experience of the whole thing. And so there's just sort of these kind of attacks on her that are just sort of constant, but you never get used to it. And so, yeah, basically like that for like sort of five or six different sections in the film. We have a recording of it. We're hoping or planning at least to um, get the audio recording and sync it up with the video since I think it's all public domain now. My thing is sound. I'm not um, skilled in the other arts. And it's just, it's really neat for me to uh, get a chance to work with that kind of process just because you wind up thinking of things that you wouldn't have if you were just working on a musical piece or if you were like a theater group and you're thinking, oh, what kind of sound do we need for this? So I love that kind of crossing all the channels and seeing what happens. Where does my sound art come from? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this sounds stupid, but why do birds sing when there aren't other birds around? It's just a way that I experience and understand the world. I kind of imagine for other people who are actively creative, where it's just a, a way that you use to interpret all of the things that you experience and try and communicate them to other people. And that's the general answer, and the specific answer might be I think that a lot of people in the world that I move in, where we're sort of in this experimental music, but also there's a lot of bass music, there's a certain extremely visceral pleasure in feeling your whole body being vibrated by low-frequency audio. It's a really it's a strange sensation to have such a physical experience of sound, but it's also really kind of addictive. So, you know, you can't listen to loud music all the time because then you're going to lose your hearing, but sometimes just getting in a space where you can feel it as much as you hear it and the body experience, but you also get all this detail of the sound. All right. So sound art is definitely not just about hearing, obviously. Right. Yeah, it's quite, it's been definitely surprising. Like I've learned some new ideas and terms regarding sound art from doing this episode, like electroacoustics, sonic mimicry, texture mapping, sound collage. Wait, wait. Hold on, wait. What? Turn off the outro music. What? Why? What? I just realized something. Huh? We need to end this episode by making sound art. That'd be cool. I call this piece The Things That Make Us Human. Did you just think of that? <laughs> I really did. <laughs> Heh <laughs>